real hard. <laughs> Welcome to another edition of Jackman Radio. I'm your host, Mike Jackman, and the co-host, Eric Jackman, is not here today because he's attending a Trump rally in Manchester, New Hampshire, dressed as Donald Trump. <laughs> this has been a crazy thing, Aaron, the last... How you doing, Aaron? Good, good. Yeah, he, he struck gold, yeah, as they been... say. It's been nuts, man. This uh, the last like two weeks since we released a Jackman Radio video release. Donald Trump names his cabinet with Eric dressing up and doing, I think, one of the greatest Donald Trump impressions. Uh, we released that uh, twenty-five minute video to YouTube, and it's it's doing very it's doing very well. It's caught fire. People are really responding to it, and uh, it's it's been a lot of fun. So, kind of on a whim to promote the video, we went to a Trump rally last week in Milford, New Hampshire, with Eric dressed as Donald. And he was getting bombarded by the press and by people wanting to take selfies and t- take footage of him and yeah. get, you know, get him on, his, on their phones. And it's wild. And it got picked up by, I mean... Yahoo, I saw Yahoo News. Yahoo. Yeah, it's like a global thing. Um, and we went to an event over the weekend to see Senator Ted Cruz speak in Peterborough, New Hampshire with Eric dressed as a Donald, and Eric was interviewed by Haritz, which is one of the largest newspapers in Israel. Uh, He was interviewed by the New York Times, by C-SPAN, the Monadnock Ledger, little local shout-out, and uh, uh, the photograph appeared in the Ledger today. Thank you, Benji, for putting that in there. You're a good man. And it's just been crazy. So he decided to go to this last event on the eve of the New Hampshire primary. It's been nuts, man, since last June when Trump came down that escalator. The most famous escalator ride in the world now, by the way, with Melania, and uh, made his announcement. I remember you and I were talking about it. That was the night we did the Phantasm episode with A. Michael Baldwin. And it's funny, Eric wasn't here for that one either because he was up in, up getting caught up on Game of Thrones. And tonight we're doing another kind of horror-themed interview. We're going to have an actor from the film Session 9, and we'll reveal who that is uh, shortly. One of my favorite horror movies of all time, and I know you... I've seen it. You've seen it. Yeah, yes. you, you enjoyed it, right? Yeah, it was all right. You like the slow burn. Yeah, yeah. I do. I do, I do like the slow burn. Yeah. I remember you I remember <laughs> you enjoy, saying it's that okay. you enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, uh, he was more enthusiastic at the time. Right. So before we get to our, our interview tonight, uh, a couple topics. So the primary is tomorrow. Finally, the New Hampshire primary. Uh, I think everyone has a prediction, you know, like a like a sporting bracket. And my rough prediction for tomorrow. Well, first of all, let me go back to Iowa. I, I uh, correctly predicted the Democratic results in Iowa, which wasn't really hard. The writing was kind of on the wall. Hillary by a little bit, then Bernie, then O'Malley, then O'Malley would drop out. All of that came true. It all came to pass. Um, I was wrong about Trump. I had Trump coming in first and Cruz in second. So, um, but I, I believe I placed Rubio and Jeb and Kasich correctly. But for New Hampshire, for tomorrow, I think Bernie Sanders is going to win the New Hampshire primary on the Democratic side. I don't think it's going to be by as much as, as far ahead as he is right now in the polls. But I do think he will. He he may win by five to ten points, which actually isn't really bad for Hillary going into like Nevada and South Carolina and other primaries and caucuses. So, uh, but I do think he will win New Hampshire, and I think Donald Trump's going to win New Hampshire tomorrow. What do you think? Oh yeah, I don't. I have no idea. I don't. I don't know. You haven't seen the polls. I'm ahead by like <laughs> seven hundred points. So that's that's going to be uh, that's going to be fun. Uh, my first time voting as a Jaffrey resident, so I'm excited about that. Wow! Oh yeah, I'm a Jaffrey resident now. <laughs> so it's crazy. The circus is coming to an end in New Hampshire, at least until November, or at least until next spring when candidates for 2020 start showing up at their meat wagons. <laughs> Kanye, he's running. I did hear Kanye 2020. Right, right. 
he's kind of already announced that, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. going strong. He's already prepared. He's Yeah, he's already building his cabinet. He's going to put Taylor Swift and Beyonce in there. Yep, yep. That would be interesting if someone like Kanye ran. He'd probably do pretty well, believe it or not. Yeah, maybe. I think I think that the election, uh, this campaign. Those, those people don't. They don't. They, they don't get out there, do you? Do they? Well, I'm just going to say the campaign <laughs> of Trump man has shown us that people are willing to to go for a celebrity and a non politician. I mean, everyone talks about Reagan. A lot of conservatives like to talk about Reagan. Well, he was a friggin' Western B movie actor, Democrat for years, and he became the most famous conservative icon, arguably of all time. So, it's all about branding and perception. So we'll we'll, we'll see what plays out with this whole Trump thing, but. If he does win, that definitely paves the way for more celebrity-type candidates. Like, I think if Oprah ran for president of the world, she'd probably win. Kind yeah, of in that vein. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited. Uh, more horror news. I get to talk about horror films and horror TV shows because Eric's not here. <laughs> the Walking Dead returns from its mid-season break this Sunday. February 14th. They took a break in between a season? Yeah, they do eight episodes. Then they they have take... always, They've always done that? I think they started doing that in season two. That's fucking lame, dude. Why that, is it lame? Because it builds anticipation. Nah, fuck that, dude. Nobody wants anticipation these days. Mad you Men it, you did that. All at once. Yeah. And, and Didn't Breaking Bad do that too? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. But some the, of the best shows of all time. Nah, no one. They never took a mid-season. It, Mad Men did. Yeah, the did, la, at well, least the last season. Mad Men, but, if not uh, the last two seasons. I just, I just don't want. I, I, yeah. Especially if if you're in a season, you're telling like one cohesive story throughout a season. Like like, they're gonna have to do a whole fucking recap of what happened the no, last first half. of Not last really. Season. No, I I don't think you don't watch The Walking Dead, right? No, no. I know there's a lot of fans out there. I've stuck with the show. A lot of people have abandoned the show, which I can understand because it, it's very repetitive. And I mean, where can they go with it? But I think season, the last season, season five, was one of the greatest seasons. Had one of the greatest. Uh, opening episodes and this current season season six the first eight episodes were really good really well done and basically what they do with the show which i think is really genius every eight episodes they tell a new story so they have threads that are from the first part of the season um, or even from the previous season that haven't totally played out and they integrate them into the current storyline while moving the story forward and there's always they always have red shirts you know like the star trek red shirts who are going to get killed who don't they, they don't do much to move the story forward, and they're kind of like almost unnamed and unseen characters. But there's a lot of main characters in the show, like Michonne and Rick and Glenn and Daryl, and one of my favorites, Carol, you know, that rhymes, who, you know, people keep tuning into to see. So I'm excited for that to be coming back this weekend. Also, uh, another personal plug, this Friday, February 12th, my band Northern Stone is playing at Crotched Mountain at 9 p.m. in... Bennington, New Hampshire, for Midnight Madness. There's no cover charge, and we'll be joined with special guest Matt Bowden on saxophone. So that'll be a good time. Mm. Anyone in the area interested wants to come check that out? That's going to be a lot of fun. So, what are you up to this weekend? This week, I got Friday off. So yeah, what are you doing? Are you going to a concert? No, no, I'm just trying to use vacation days. So I'm doing, I'm doing like a few three day weekends, and then uh, Saturday something saturday but i forget what i don't know that's why i have everything on the calendar app i'm all about the the calendar app yeah you're, you're really good on that oh, yeah you're, you're you're on top of things keeps me focused you know that's good stuff yeah well all right well we are coming up on our interview and uh we're going to take a quick break so don't go anywhere we have a interview coming up with the actor writer and producer from session nine and we will bring that to you in just a few minutes
And welcome back to Jackman Radio. We are joined by Stephen Jevedin. Stephen is an American actor, writer, and producer. He's appeared in such TV shows as Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Oz, NYPD Blue Law and Order, Special Victims Unit, Nurse Jackie, and most recently the TV movie Madoff. He also appeared in The War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise and appeared in and co-wrote the film Session 9, which is, as listeners know, my favorite horror film of all time. Stephen, how you doing? Oh, and, uh, you're welcome, and thank you so much for agreeing to come on and, and uh, do the interview. And as I kind of mentioned in our uh, initial conversation and in, in booking the interview, um, you know, Session 9, one of my favorite horror films of all time. Um, I just want to get right into it on that film before we talk about some other stuff. Uh, so you co-wrote the film with Brad Anderson, correct? Now, what was what was some of the inspirations that you had for writing Session Nine, and, and to come up with kind of subtle, simple but very scary and effective, uh, you know, atmosphere? Well, um, to give credit where credit's due, it was actually uh, Brad that came to me. Um, I remember that we were at his birthday party, his birthday, in fact, and he approached me about wanting to write a horror movie with me, um, and he had this idea. He lived up in um, uh, up in the in the Boston area there, uh, uh, Somerville. He lived in Somerville for four or five years, I think. Which is where he did his uh, movie called Next Top Wonderland. Um, was was inspired by that. But he, because of that time there, he knew about the Danvers State uh, uh, Lunatic Asylum, uh, which everybody kind of knows about. If, you know, if, uh, if you're in that area, it was right. a pretty famous place. And um, so he had this idea of shooting something there, um, and he had the rudimentary and the idea of it being asbestos abatement, which was just a way to get into the building, you know, it was just an excuse to, to get people in there. Uh, he wasn't even 100% sure that that would be the, the, the reason that there were people in there, but it was a good enough one to start it with. And anyway, so that's how that came about, and I just said, yeah, sure, let's do that. Right. And um, uh, that led us to uh, we we went up there to the to the facility to take a look. Over. When we realized we were actually going to write something, we figured it was probably important to go up there and check out the, the place. You know, for both inspiration and and um, uh, you know just knowledge of what we were writing about. And then, then the, you know, and then the process just kind of. Right, and in your character in the film, I believe the character's name was Mike, right? That's correct. Yeah. Right, you're really kind of a, um, I don't know, kind of jocular, kind of sure of himself, but you also kind of fill in the backstory and move the plot forward. Um, where did you get the characteristics for that character, and and uh, did you write a lot of his dialogue, or what? What would you say was your your biggest contribution to the overall writing and, and gist of the story? Well. Um... I would say I mean, this was my first collaboration on a screenplay. I'd written, um, you know, I'd, I'd been writing a lot, whether it was song lyrics or, or I wrote a couple of plays, but you know, all of it basically on my own, and certainly not a screenplay. And the way this, it was a pretty even, you know, um, collaboration. It wasn't like uh, you know, Brad did the dialogue and I plotted out the scenes or, I mean, it was, I don't know how other people work. I mean, actually, I do know how other people work. So some people, um, they, they, you know, it's a wide variety of processes, you know. And ours was that we, when we decided on the basic story, um, what was going to happen and how it was going to end, and oh, also, by the way, I should, I should add, Brad also had, uh, he knew about uh, the, that murder, uh, the, the, I forget the name of the person now. You, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I, I'm pretty sure it happened in Framingham, Massachusetts in the mid-90s. Yes, that one. He, he'd heard of that. And I think I'd heard about it, too, sort of in passing, you know. And we knew we wanted to sort of incorporate that into the story. But at any rate... When we got around to 
and then whatever notes he had, he would um, shape into a scene and add to, and you know, write additional dialogue, his own, you know, whatever, whatever it needed to get to the place where we wanted it. So it's a little bit difficult to say who contributed what, and you know, it's kind of like getting the cream out of the coffee. But in terms of the characters, they have broad strokes of characters. We knew we wanted. You know, Mike's role was going to be the the fallen intellectual, you know, and kind of the the sort of a narrator. You know, if if we needed any exposition, like what was the place? Why are we here? You know, any sort of that kind of stuff. Um, it was Mike's character who was going to do it because, and you know, Mike's character actually, without his character, the, the movie, you know, he, he doesn't unleash this malevolent spirit, you know, so nothing would happen really, you know, he is uh, very much a force in in driving the plot forward, you know, whatever plot there there is, not not much of a plot, I might, I I, I admit, (laughs) but, um, uh, so, you know, we were just putting together a team of people, literally characters who each had, you know, a role, um, Brendan's character was the little cute, you know, fluffy, you know, innocent, you know, and Josh's character was the, the sort of cynical guy, you know what I mean? And, and David's character was the, the, the hardworking fella who, who, took, uh, who took a little bit of a beating in life. And, you know, so once we had those, then the characters kind of, you know, filled, uh, the characters became, filled themselves in rather, you know. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things I really enjoy a lot about the movie is the everyman quality to the characters and that they are relatable and the whole thing kind of unravels organically. And like you mentioned about the character of Mike, he's, you know, it seems he was a law student or something or he he was going to yeah. practice law, but here he here he is removing asbestos and, and doing... Well, a... he, was, he was sort of not, not just loosely. I mean, I don't know if Brad and I talked about it, but I know, you know... There is a stereotype. The the I knew people like this in college, um, who were from privileged backgrounds, or from um, you know money, or uh, and didn't you know shun that, and somehow this you know decided that somehow being from money or from privileged class or or, or economic privilege was. Um, uh, embarrassing to them, or, or they didn't feel like it was real enough. So that was Mike. In a lot of ways, Mike is the sort of reverse classist, I guess. You know, where like sort of worships at the feet of the working class because he's not that. Yeah. Um, and as much as he tries, he's never going to be that. And I think his the, the characterization was a little influenced by that as well. That Mike really isn't one of the guys. You know, he wants to be, but he's not. Right. And he's never going to be Caruso's character or Peter or, or, or any of the other guys, really, in that, in that team. Or even Gordy, who just kind of epitomizes yeah, yeah. working class. Right. And, and and I think, you know, we mentioned this, too, in our exchange. Um, one of the, I think there's a lot of themes in the film, and I know people can read into things a lot differently, and there's a lot written about it. But I think one of the themes is the erosion and the breakdown of the of the American dream. And the characters, as, as the days of the week go by slowly start to become you know unglued and 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 untangled and more more of what's going on with gordy is being revealed and um i don't know that's kind of what i read into it you know in in the guise of a horror film you know because it's another thing i really liked about it was was the slow burning nature of it and it wasn't particularly gory or or violent but there was a lot of innuendo and a lot of you know suggestive qualities to the film that that just you know very unsettling well, thanks. Um, that was um, interestingly enough. I, I, I also wanted to say, when, when with regard to like the dialogue and the characterization, when you brought up, um, you know, the everyman quality of the characters, I, I Brad has a really um, he writes very smoothly. Um, is the best way I can like the the words don't seem to be labored and consequently the dialogue is very um, uh, 
yeah. a lot, again, the lack of a better word, easy, it's an easy banter with the characters. And I think that gives them an accessibility that may, that you can read into an everyman quality. You know, there's not a lot of mannered speech. It's not, it's how people talk. He's, he's, right. That's the easiest way to say it. He writes very naturalistically. So, yeah, that combined with me working, you know, when, when we would work together, I would, you know, get a little riff going back and forth between characters, and then Brad could add to that seamlessly on the page. And then sometimes Brad and I would actually just act out the scene, you know, if, if we were, and, and that, I think, uh, contributed to that. Right. Um, and, and that, I, that, that, you know, that, that, that feel. But uh, to the theme of, of um, <laughs> uh, the, the erosion of the American dream, the, one, of the, one of the original themes we had going was, it was neither, I have a child and Brad has, has two now, but we were both childless then. And as a little inside joke, this was supposed to be a cautionary tale about having children, you know? <laughs> Um, and, uh, and, and a family period, you know, this was like probably better off as single. Um, but part of it certainly was there, um, the idea of, you know, having to work harder and harder just to make ends meet and, you know, undercut yourself, undersell yourself to get a job, you know? Right. Um, and these are things that were certainly are certainly on my mind now, and we're certainly on, I think, both online. Then I don't recall us spending too much time talking about that when we were writing it. We were, we were, you know, you don't, you don't want to write, you know, if we wanted to write a political treatise, we would have written a pamphlet, you know, or right. something. Or, but, and the themes that you see there certainly are there. I'm not saying they're not, but they weren't so much of a conscious decision on our part. I will say this, though. There is a scene in the picture where the camera tracks by um, a broken glass with the American flag on it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that. I do. It was um, towards the beginning of the film, I think. Say that again? It's towards the beginning of the film. Yeah, yeah. We're, getting, we're sort of showing the... the yeah, right. And um, we found that there. Uh, it, in fact, 90% of everything you see in the movie was just shot on location, and we didn't really change too much of anything other than move some stuff around for convenience sake. But, you know, so that uh, American flag, the broken glass, that was there. When Brad and I saw it, well, Brad saw it. He's like, you know, we should definitely put that in the picture. Right. Because of those themes that had developed while we'd been writing it. Um, and to your point, Peter Mullen, uh, the uh, actor who played Gordon, told me very, was very direct about the fact that the reason he wanted to do the, the picture um, was for exactly that reason, because of the social commentary right. um, that, that, you, that you picked up on. Yeah, I mean, you can see the stress on his face, you know, it's... it's uh... Um, you know, the, the, it's, it's really well done. And, and back to the, the asylum itself. So you guys got in there and were able to film before this place was demolished. Um, I've read that most of the, the asylum was uh, uninhabitable and you couldn't really go in because of because uh, it was dangerous due to, you know, uh, structural integrity. But are there any stories of being in the asylum at night and being freaked out or anything that, that happened to the cast or crew during the, uh, the filming that uh, gave you pause? filming um, because we were you know trying to it was, it was interesting because usually on a set on a, on a, I don't know pretty much every set that I've been on um, when you're not busy when you you know if you're a crew member if you don't have to be around the set you tend to wander off and you know grab you know a cup of coffee or something or you know and it's not but on this set uh, nobody wandered off no, let me go explore the, the rest of the building on my own. And yeah, there was certainly, at least back in, in when we were there, which was, I guess, 2000, there were certain floors and, and areas that were definitely off limits that um, you couldn't go to because it was the, the structural integrity was, was very questionable. But a lot of it wasn't. I mean, you, you could, Brad and I broke in, actually, um, uh, with some urban spelunkers 
we you know, kind of we spent a good two hours wandering around the entire, as much as you know, a, a good portion of the facility. Um, in fact, on that first trip, uh, a lot of the major, the big scenes, uh, or the big locations were, were found. And yeah, it was very, very creepy um, for me. And for me, you know, it's dark. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we were underground at one point in the, you know, in the tunnels. <clears throat> and it's, you know, it's an insane asylum, a former insane asylum. I mean, um, it's just a, a, a naturally heavy place, you know. Um, right. Not the kind of place where you, you don't get a sense that there were a lot of laughs there. No, this is the, I mean, I, I really think it seeps through onto, onto the screen. I mean, the, the energy and the atmosphere and the, the history of, of uh, that building. And the building itself is almost like another character in the film, the way it, it, it looms over the whole picture. You know, it has... Yeah, a, yeah well, that was, that was definitely one of the reasons. Um, yeah, yeah, so that, yeah. So, you know, having watched the film a number of times, and a, a lot of horror fans have uh, viewed the film numerous times, there's kind of a debate whether or not there really is a supernatural thing going on, or it's 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 a you know psychological thing, and I, I kind of go back and forth on the interpretation of it. Do you, do you have your own interpretation? If you don't want to uh, discuss what your interpretation is, uh... <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I don't particularly want to be too. I, I you know obviously you're right. That's been the debate, um, one of the major debates about the picture from this first you know, the first time it, it came out. Um, and I hesitate to say one way or another because I think um, it's sort of like, uh, you know, learning what the card trick is. And everybody thinks they want to know what the card trick is, and then when you know, you're, you're sort of kind of deflated because it's just a card trick and there's nothing particularly special about this. Um, so I do hesitate to, to say what I think, but, but I will say that um, we tried to... You know, I, I don't know if this is this is a cop out answer, but there's the, the the universe is a big place, and there's a lot of stuff that goes on that isn't necessarily uh, quantifiable and explained away easily, um, including just human behavior. And you know, just look if you look at the history of Danvers, what you know people thought was crazy is now just you know, institutionalizable, if that's a word, you know, what people would get institutionalized for in 1904 is what people call a bad day today, you know, and right. so you don't, I, I, I'm, I'm, of course there's a psychological element to the picture, it, it is about the pressures of life, you know, exerting, um, themselves on you, and this, the, the, if there is a supernatural part of it, it's that moment in where, where you don't, and I think everybody has this, at least, I mean, I'd be surprised if it's more, not more than once in their life where they look back on a moment where they didn't feel completely in control of what they were doing. I mean, I'm not talking about doing anything untoward or horrible, but, you know, even just I don't know, whatever. There's something, you know, you look back and go, why did I do that? Right. And what made me do, what made me do that, you know? And I think that's where the movie really sits, you know, in that place where, um, you know, what, what, what the voice says at the end, um, my, my favorite line, um, one of my favorite lines of the picture, is that, you know, the, I live in the weak and the wounded yeah. line. Um, because that's really what also the movie for me is about, uh, beyond it being a horror movie, is that um, we all have felt or feel that we are that, you know, weak and wounded, and you know, you're just trying to, like, maintain and get back from that, you know. Absolutely. That's a, that's a thin line, and that's my that's my absolute favorite uh, line in the movie, next to Dave Crusoe going, hey, fuck you! <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you a story about the weak and the wounded line. Um, that, that was a, a nice, uh, I think, um, uh, uh, anecdote regarding our Brad Mines collaboration where he had written the line, I live in the wound. Um, and so we both, you know, we both had this idea that this, uh, if, if it is a, 
least ashamed of, right? Or it, it works on your weaknesses. Right. If it, if, if the logic of that, you know, malevolence. Um, and so if you'd written this line, I live in the womb. And here I said, what? Because I thought he'd said I live in the womb, as in, you know, babies. Right. <laughs> and, and he said, no, 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 I live in the womb. And, and I said, you know what? I don't know. I get what, well, you know, that's great. But I think, I think we need to make it clear that it's not, you know, a, a woman's womb, but rather let's make it I live in the weak and the wounded. And that way, you know, it's clearly not, you know, the, 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 the word is, is clearly not womb. And that's how that line came about. And I think this is a nice little, when collaboration is going well, you get that. And that's kind of become an iconic line in the picture, um, at least. Oh, with a, without a doubt. I challenge anybody listening who hasn't seen Session 9 to watch the film and not get chills and that very last shot, uh, which every, yeah. every time I watch it, it still gives me chills. And, I, you know, I've seen any kind of horror movie imaginable, and, and this one is the one that freaks me out the most and, and makes and makes me think the most because cause it is plausible and stuff like this happens every... Stuff worse than this happens. But oh, yeah. but that that line, I agree. I think that line embodies the whole film. And you know, as humans, we are fallible, and, and humans are capable of great goodness, but we're also capable of really uh, great evil. Yeah, 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 all the time. So, unfortunately, yeah, uh, yeah, right. And 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 you know, even uh, I know it's been 15 years since the film came out. So, spoiler spoilers to people who haven't seen the film. Uh, Gordy is, you know. Gordy is either mental or possessed by this uh, by this uh, demon. You still kind of feel for the guy by the end of the film, you know. You you still feel sympathy for him or, or empathy, and and uh, well, yeah, and that's well, that's a credit to, to Peter, um, who I mean, we, we we got really lucky to have him, and frankly, with the rest of the cast as well. But um, you know, he really humanized that character. I mean, it could have been you know, played in so many different ways because, you know, the way it was written, the way it wasn't, um, the way we wrote everybody, really, all the characters, was pretty wide open, as with uh, Brendan's character, and he just looks at him and, he, you know, he says, I'm tired, you know, yeah. I'm so tired. Um, I mean, it's just it's heartbreaking, you know. It, it is, and, and you know, Session 9 has really become, I, I guess it could be called a cult film, but among horror fans, it's become a very uh, popular and, and well-regarded film. What do you attribute, what, what do you think it is 15 years later that kind of people are still uh, talking about it or recommending it to people who maybe don't like the gory, um, you know, subgenres of the horror genre? Yeah, no, I think it's great. I mean, I'm frankly always pleasantly surprised and... Um, you know, every year around Halloween, it gets name-checked. It used to wind up on these dubious lists of, you know, 10 best horror movies that you haven't seen, which is nice, but, you know, of course, you'd like to just be on the ones that people have seen. Um, but uh, uh, um, recently, I think, uh, you know, last year, it wound up on a list, I can't remember from what website it um, uh I wound up on a list of the 10 best horror movies of the 2000s, which is a pretty, you know, there's there's some good horror movies that came out. I mean, I'm not an aficionado, so I don't really follow a horror thing, but I've seen a few that are pretty damn good. Um, you know, you know, any, yeah, and it's nice to be on, on on that list. And to that, actually, to that point, it's I, it's odd. You called to this uh, podcast, which, again, I, I very much appreciate your, your attention and the time you're giving
Yeah, yeah. That, oh, that's great. That's great news. I had no idea that it was being uh, re-released or because it came out on U- USA Films, right? Like a small or a smaller independent uh, label or film company, right? Yeah, or, or yeah. Did... It was USA Films put it out. Um, that USA was yeah USA Films, which was um, that same year USA Films put out Traffic. Actually, came out. Okay. Um, around the same time. Right, Benicio del Toro and uh, Catherine yeah. Zeta Jones, right? I think. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I remember watching this film, Session Nine. I was like fourteen or fifteen, and I was watching it with my buddy, and you know, we were big, uh, big horror guys, and you know, we we liked Saw, and and you know, I had a phase where we liked the those type of films. But what what were your um, inspirations in coming up with this story and, and and approaching the horror genre from, you know, maybe when you were a kid? Well, uh, it's funny. Uh, you should ask because Brad and I, you know, we well basically we, I think we can, the cat's out of the bag. We just kind of ripped off The Shining, and with the way. days of the week, yeah. Excuse me. With the days of the week coming up on the screen, like Monday. Yeah, the days of the week, the quiet nature of the picture, um, you know, the fact that there isn't a lot of gore in The Shining, you know, really other than Scatman Crothers getting a, an axe in his chest, there's not a lot. Well, there's some gore, I guess, but but not really very much. Um, but uh, the movies that both Brad and I responded to from you know that age, that you know, 13 to whatever, 15, 16, 17, um, were, were oddly the same ones. Um, there was a, a movie called Burnt Offerings. I don't, I don't know if you remember that. Um, I have heard of it. I haven't actually seen that one. Yeah, it's a really creepy, it just has some very creepy images in it. Um, I, I, to, be honest with, to be honest with you, I don't really remember what the story was about. I, I just remember there's some very, just, like, just creepy images. Um, and then, you know, there are other movies that we just like the tone of. Um, and that's really what we were trying to, to do with Session 9, is capture the tone of, like, The Omen and The Exorcist. You know, the, the, the everyone that everybody kind of knows, but um, also uh, there's um, one of my the first actually R-rated movie that I went to go see uh, that I snuck into um, was uh, um, oh Jesus, uh, Dawn of the Dead. Dawn, oh, Dawn um, of the Dead. Yeah, yeah, the sequel to Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, the sequel to that, right? And it was out in like the late seventies. Seventy-eight, I think. Or something. Yeah. And even though it's a very gore-heavy movie, there is an ominous. It's a great. It's a. It's I, my favorite of the of the four. Um, and even the remake is very good because they didn't stray too much from the uh, the original. But it's this idea of you know a handful of people trapped in a building that that is, and, and you know bad things are happening to them and and. The normalcy of the people, the the fact that they can't really get out, um, it's all very, uh, that was something that I know I brought, at least subconsciously, to the table with, with Session 9. <clears throat> and then, as a kid, I just watched all those, like, Hammer movies and, and the B-Vampire movies out of, out of Hollywood and from the 50s, you know? Right. All that sort of stuff. The thing uh, was uh, another... Very, you know, in a similar fashion. It's you know a bunch of guys trapped, um, trying to work something out, and and paranoia ensues, and there's a threat, but is it really a threat? You know, the, the, especially the remake of the thing, which I thought was um, one of the few times where I think the remake was better than the original. Oh yeah, with Kurt Russell and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. John, John Carpenter's the thing, right, from 1980. Yeah. Yeah, I love uh, that's a I, I love most of Carpenter's work, and yeah, I agree. That's a uh, that's great. So I mean, I, I guess you mentioned you're not really a, a big horror guy now, but are there any any more recent horror films that you're a fan of, or that you're looking forward to seeing? Or well, you know what? That's I was never a, I was more a science fiction guy. Um, you know, I liked horror, and like I said, I was as a kid on TV uh, in the seventies. Anytime there was a vampire movie, I was watching. And, and that lasted pretty much into high school. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's 
science fiction genre that I was really a fan of. And in terms of horror these days, I've seen, I guess I saw Hostel, and I, I saw some of that, um, some of that stuff. The, the, the horror movies that I'm interested in, I, I really like the Japanese stuff. Um, I, I guess I saw The Grudge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is that the one with the, the, the little girl in the well? Is that uh, right? That was the ring. The uh, I'm the, sorry, the ring. Yeah, the, the ring. yeah, they were very similar. Um, that that wave of horror kind of came in the early, like 2002 to 2004 uh, before Saw came into the picture. But yeah, yeah, the J the J yeah, horror. Sorry, sorry, say that again. Yeah, J horror. It's called Japanese horror. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So I saw a bit of that, and I've seen clips of the you know some of the, the original Japanese stuff, and uh, to be honest with you, I think what happened at a certain point. Um, sort of, sort of like what you were saying earlier about you know people are, can be very good and people can also be very bad. I, I, I'm reminded of something that John Cleese, uh, the comedian from Monty Python, actually said once about comedy: that when you're young, you think the world is this orderly place, and there are these moments of absurdity, like. Uh, you know, politics and how could people be so absurd and, and ridiculous? And so you make fun of them because you, it, it's funny that people could have a ministry, you know, of, of whatever in the Great Britain, the bureaucracy of all the ministries and stuff. So you make fun of it and call it the ministry of silly walks. <laughs> and the older you get, you realize it's actually the inverse, that, that the world is pretty absurd and, and disturbing at times. And there are these pockets of normalcy. So you you know, you kind of, your, your vision of everything gets slipped and it's not that funny anymore. It's, it's just actually sort of tragic, really. And I think for me, that's also sort of where horror is. Like, I don't, I don't particularly need to go find, I, I don't get an escape from going to horror movies, so I don't really, they just really disturb me. <laughs> I mean, they just make me like, oh, geez, that was just fucking awful. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, and so I'd, and that's not to say I'd, I'd go see romantic comedies. I don't do that either. But, um, but I do think there's something implicitly hopeful about uh, science fiction because it, it talks, even if it's dark science fiction, even if it's um, the more uh, you know dystopian visions, it's still a vision of the future with uh, the possibility of solutions. You know. Oh, absolutely. Um, so that's 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 sort of where where I'm at with with horror movies. Plus, they actually creep me out. I mean, they do scare me more than I think they did when I was a little kid. Yeah, and and, and the implications of of a well made horror movie it's very frightening. You know, I mean, it's uh, I think a good horror movie will just basically put a a mirror up to society or will reflect what the the worst in in uh, human nature can be, and that really does leave you unsettled and really does make you think about shit, and it kind of it kind of does get to you. So, <laughs> I I don't I don't. Yeah, wa- I mean, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say I don't watch as as, as much horror as I used to, you know, as, as I'm getting older, because kind of like what you were saying about, you know, the bad stuff in the world, I don't need to see that, that doesn't make me feel very good, and I'm refreshed when I see a film that doesn't have somebody with a gun shooting someone, or someone stabbing someone, or doing all these violent acts, so, um, and I think in a lot of ways we become kind of desensitized to it. Well, actually, again, I can't speak for, for anybody else other than me, I would say I'm more sensitized to it these days, you know, as a kid... I think, you know, you don't really, you know, you don't really understand, well, you don't really know that that the world, that there are people that do this, you know, that there are people that um, kidnap other people, torture them, and then kill them, you know. Um, It's it's just a horror movie to you. It's a creepy, awful thing, but it's just a horror movie to you. And for me, at any rate, like uh, like you said, you know, it's this sort of stuff does happen, um, and and if it's done well, I mean, you know, if it if it's like if it's like a flasher picture, that's one thing altogether. But if it's done well, I'm not sure. I I I, I like being in them. You know, what I mean? like I just did a horror movie, a, a sort of a funny kind of campy horror movie called Hellbenders. Um, uh, that came out about four years ago or something. Oh yeah, wasn't uh, Dan Dan Fogler in that? Yeah, Dan Fogler. Yeah, he 
Jeezy's in it, and Andre Royals in it, Steve Clancy, a bunch of folks, uh, and me, and, um, at any rate, um, and it's sort of along the lines of, like, uh, creep show, you know, that sort of genre. Right, kind of fun, kind of, uh, horror comedy. Yeah, 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 goofy horror, yeah, I don't, I don't know what they call the genre, but, but yeah, and, um, Depending on the idea of playing a serial killer in a movie doesn't disturb me. <laughs> it's just that I don't necessarily want to see it. Right. But then again, you know, to be fair, I don't go see very many movies at all, really. It's, um, uh, yeah, kind of selective about it. You're, you're kind of selective about what you go see in the theaters? Um, it, it turns, well, I live, like I said, I live here in New York City, and there's a lot of stuff to do other than sit in a theater, so I always feel like I'm missing out on something if I'm in a movie theater in New York, um, and then now I have a kid, so, you know, I'd have to do it during the daytime, and then I'm busy writing, right. so, I, you know, like, I, I have, it's funny, I, you know, I just, it's a huge diatribe on, on how horror movies creep me out, and I don't go see them, but I wrote, you know, I just finished a horror movie, or wrote one, that I'm looking to, um, direct, and, uh, shoot and it's a it's a pretty awful hopefully I think it's pretty awful you know and it when people see it they should they should be pretty well creeped out by it so there you go I'm a complete hypocrite hey hey man I'm you know I I, I hope we I hope we can see it and shifting to another horror that uh, uh-huh. many millions of Americans are affected by that is the horrendous, uh, maybe not non-violent crimes, but crimes of people on Wall Street. And just last week, there was a two-part TV series called Madoff that you were, uh, yeah. that you were in with Richard, Dr- yeah, you're in that with Richard Dreyfus and Louis Black. Do you want to talk a little bit about that project and, and your character? Oh, yeah, sure. uh, that was a lot of fun. I, I kind of just got that, it sort of bubbled up out of nowhere and, um, it, what was great, well, what was great about that is, I mean, my, my little, I have a very small part in it, so if you're a Stephen Jevedon actor fan, you know, it, 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 you're not going to be particularly well rewarded. It's a nice little part, I will say that. And what was great about it was, it was, I was in a scene with Richard Dreyfus and one of my heroes, um, he's, he, you know, he's been in, like, two of my favorite movies, well, actually more than that, but two... Uh, he was in, in American Graffiti and and Jaws, who, who which are I think extraordinary movies. Um, and then uh, my father-in-law is played by Charles Grodin, another uh, hero of mine. Uh, he's you know extraordinary comedic talent actor in general, and also in one of my favorite movies, Midnight Run, which is all those three movies. I highly recommend everybody go see. But um, uh, yeah, so uh, that thing came out, uh, and I mean, rather that that bubbled up, and it was a lot of fun to do. I played a, a character whose name escapes me. Uh, I can't Rob, Robert Jaffe. Robert Jeff. There you go, Robert Jaffe. Yes. And what's funny about that is I looked him up. You know, when you get a part, they they you know they usually tell you the the character. There's a character description somewhere in the script, you know, and. And in the character description in the script, they wrote, you know, he's an unctuous character. I'm like, well, that's an interesting word to use. So I looked him up, and, and, and sure enough, in his Wikipedia page, he's described as unctuous. I think it's the first character I've played that has been described as unctuous. I thought that was just great. You know, <laughs> and once you know that as an actor, there's really... You know, you're pretty much free to do anything at that point. You know, you, you can't overplay this guy. You know, so um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And you know, interestingly, with Madoff, uh, is it Madoff or Madoff? What do you say? Uh, Bernie Madoff. He made off with the money. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> um, what's interesting though about that is like, yeah, I mean, it was a Ponzi scheme, certainly. I mean, that's some. But if you were one of the guys who was in that fun for 20 years you know like let's say you, you were in it and then decided to get out in the late 90, late 90s you made money you know oh you, you, made, know? you made tons of money almost and, almost as much as Donald Trump almost <laughs> <laughs> yeah well anyway yeah no so that was um, that was that I mean it was a lot of fun to do and um, 
it's always surprising at how powerful network TV is. Um, because I did a, I did another show, uh, another politically, uh, economically charged show uh, on HBO called Show Me a Hero. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I've gotten more reaction from the, the like 40 seconds I was in the, in the Madoff thing than I did, like I was in the entire series. There's a six-part miniseries, I mean, five episodes. And, you know, a few of my friends, you know, have gotten in touch with me, a couple of people, but, but it's just remarkable how many people still watch, you know, those major networks. Yeah, no, I'll have to check that out. That uh, that sounds interesting. And you have a, an upcoming comedy coming out called uh, Catfight with Sandra O oh and Hesh and Alicia Silverstone. Yes, yeah, I just shot that. Um, we just shot that in December with a great director, really, like a really good guy and, and fun. That was a lot of fun to do. It's a little movie. Um, you know, I, I don't know how much money they had to shoot it, but it wasn't a lot. You know, just a little indie film. Uh, the director's kind of Onar, Onar Tuckle, he's Turkish, from, from, from Raleigh, North Carolina, where I have a lot of friends from uh, that area anyway. And uh, he's been living up here for in New York for like the last 10 years or so, I think. Um, and I know very little about, about you know, what how that picture's going to, what it's about, really. I, I'm, I play, I know I play a odd, um, art dealer, and all of my my all of my scenes with Anne Hesh, which was great as well. Um, to do to work with her, and it's just neat, you know. You get to that's one of the nice things about this business is you get to you know work with different people and work with cool people and interesting uh, uh, you know artistic types, and you know, so that was one of one of those great moments where that all happened. And it was fun, because sometimes it's just not fun, and it's just, but that was, the cherry on the Sunday was it was fun. Oh, that's great. Hey, as long as you're doing what you love, and you're having a good time, man, and, and you can, you know, keep it going, that's awesome. You know, yeah, that's, good. that's the American dream. <laughs> exactly, we're not, and that's not, <laughs> that's a good way to circle back around. Uh, so, yeah. you've, uh, I guess one of my last questions here, you've done a lot of television too, Stephen. Uh, looks like you've done, yeah. you know, you've done Star Trek and, and Oz and NYPD Blue and Law and Order. What's, uh, what was your, what were one of your favorite shows to work on and what, what was that experience like? Well, uh, on, a, on a very personal uh, note, and it was also a, just a great time to do, but it also happened early in my career. Uh, it was the second job I actually ever got was uh, doing uh, Deep Space Nine. And it was a, so that was a big deal. Um, I'd never done a TV show before, and, um, but I'm a huge Star Trek fan, I think I mentioned I'm a science fiction guy. And I've been, I I was the kid, like when I was a kid here in New York, every night, uh, Channel 11 here, WPIX used to have Star Trek on at 6 p.m. and I watched it religiously every every night at six. So I've seen the first, you know, the Captain Kirk Star Trek, seen the entire run of that series four or five times, and that was just by sixth grade, you know. So um, to be in, to be able to be in Star Trek, and uh, and that was actually a, a particularly important episode in the Star Trek universe, you know, of lore. It was. It was, um, it hinted, at, well, it made the tip of the hat to the episode that was um, in that first original series called uh, Mirror, Mirror. My episode was called Crossover, and um, it, it, was, it was just an extraordinary experience. We shot on the Paramount block. I, I was a Klingon on Star Trek, and I got beamed in and out. That was, you know, for a Star Trek fan who used to go to Star Trek conventions back when he was, a, you know, a little kid. Um, to this day, that is, is one of the great personal triumphs of, of mine in, in, in this business. Oh, that's a cool story. Yeah, I'd, I would be floored. I mean, and you hear similar stories about the newer cast for uh, the Star Wars, Force Awakens. Um, oh, yeah. You know, that's a very similar story to that. I can I can only imagine. I haven't, yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, if it were, yeah, Star Wars as well, when Star Wars came out, 
Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a fan of uh, certainly both series, and uh, uh, I'm hoping they put Shatner in the third Star Trek movie coming out this year, Star Trek Beyond, because they... Uh, oh, yeah, that, that, I, I did sort of hear chatter about that. That would be great, I think. You know, because they did, I thought they did a great job with Spock Prime and bringing Leonard Nimoy back for um, the first one and even a little bit in the second one, so I, I don't see why they wouldn't be able to have an older... Kirk or an older Chekhov or any you know or or, or Sulu. Um, sure. I think yeah, the yeah. I like, think well, they did it. You know they did it before. You know where where they you know they had. I remember there was well one of them had a cameo a Sulu cameo. Yeah, I mean like it, it's great. The universe that they created is is so um um what's the word uh, uh malleable and and big rather malleable is I think the wrong word but big that they can, you know you can do that stuff and I think you know if you all you want to do is, is be true to the to the to the you know source material and you can you can really play around with that and that's what I like about um, some of the newer movies you know that, that, that it's it's a tip of the hat to the older stuff but they're they're trying to push things forward it's just neat very neat. Oh, absolutely, and and so I guess closing here, Stephen. You mentioned you you've written a new horror project. What what else you got in the pipeline uh, coming out, or, or that you're going to be uh, going into production on? Well, actually, um, there's I'm, actually I just found out today. I'm tomorrow. I'm doing a day. Uh, I do a little part uh, in this uh, Alec Baldwin Salma Hayek movie called Drunk Parents. Uh, that's being shooting right now Fred Wolf is directing it's a, a, you know it's a comedy and so that should be a lot of fun I play actually another sort of um, rich annoying guy at a country club um, <laughs> along you know so that should be fun um, and uh, in terms of like yeah in terms of other stuff that I'm working on there's, there's so there's this horror movie called um, that I've written called In the Dark Alone um, that I'm Trying, you know, I'm shopping around. There's a couple of TV shows. I don't know if you're familiar with um, uh, Andre Royo from The Wire. Yeah, did was he the, was he the police commissioner or the chief or the captain? No, no, he he played a character called Bubbles. He was, um, oh yeah, uh, he 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 was the heroin addict. Excuse me. He was the the, the heroin addict. Yes, correct. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, um, so yeah. Andre and I were in that horror movie I told you about, Hellbenders. We met on that, and we have a we created a, a little uh, cop show for the two of us, uh, sort of a half hour dramedy um, where we play New York City detectives, and we're trying to you know we're trying to get that off the ground. Um, and then there's a, there's a handful of other projects you know that are in the works but aren't you know um, uh, that I'm going to either act in uh, that uh, that aren't you know, uh, what's the word uh, firmed up here. So. I, can't really talk about that stuff. Hey, but, hey um, that's great. Yeah. So, you know, there's stuff in the works. Well, that's great, Stephen. Well, hey, you know, it's been such a pleasure talking with you, and, and I can't thank you enough for joining us, and and uh, I hope it, it was enjoyable for you, and, and uh, yeah. I, I hope that uh, I wish you more continued success with uh, with your career and, and writing credits, and uh, I will look for that uh, Session 9 Redux. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for the time, and I really appreciate you reaching out. All right. Absolutely. Hey, you're welcome. Have a good night. Yep. Okay. Bye. Stephen Jevedin, writer and actor from Session 9 and uh, many TV shows, really friendly guy. That was informative for any Session 9 fans out there. Some cool stories about writing that film and, and uh, yeah, that was great. So... This has been another episode of Jackman Radio. Aaron, it's been a pleasure serving with you. 
this last year. Yep, yep. I think this is got this whole thing off the ground. Yeah, man, it's it's gone by really fast, and uh, I I think we told the listeners, but I, I'm pretty sure tonight you're going to be your last time with right, us. Yeah, I discussed it uh, last week. I didn't have a microphone though. Um, yeah, just kind of moving on, doing doing my own kind of things, and uh, yeah, you've got your music. Um, right. That you right. Have, uh, Aaron has an album that came out recently. Oh yeah, yeah. You can get get that on Bandcamp. Search "Dope Glow" on Bandcamp or um, let's see, the SoundCloud. Uh, you can find it on there, and uh, it's on the Facebook. Yep, yep. If yeah, if you go to my Facebook page, I'm whoring myself out there. So good. Well, you should, man. It's good to get your art out there, and you'll be moving out to uh, Washington State in the next couple months. Yes, right? yes. Hopefully getting the funds together so yeah so aaron's got some stuff going on and we're really bummed that he's to be losing him but we knew the entire time that this day would be coming and uh so i'm, I'm not going to say we're taking a hiatus i mean this trump stuff has been uh, nuts it's been blowing up so yeah, strike while the iron's hot well exactly so we're going to see where, where that's going to go and actually let me show you these uh check out this business card that we had printed out jackman radio Book New England's best Donald Trump impersonator. <laughs> and we've been handing these out. Like Eric handed a bunch of these out tonight at the Trump rally. Business inquiries. Senator Jackman at gmail.com. You got the Facebook, Twitter, and Podbean uh, podcast logos there. Nice, nice. Yeah, and that was designed by our uh, good friend Jeff Cornell, a.k.a. Poopsie, who uh, shot the Trump skit and also shoots weddings down in Connecticut and all throughout New England. And his wedding video company is called JF3 Productions. So if anyone's getting married and they want to uh, have a really you know slickly produced, well-made wedding video, which includes drone footage, check those guys out. Their website just launched, and it uh, it looks great. So... And before we leave tonight, I have to play the very ending of my favorite horror movie of all time, Session 9. Enjoy. Try to sleep well. And where do you live, Simon? I live in the weak and the wounded. Dog. Thank you. 
Take those dark ones and shake them and break them and send them away. 